to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray again, shall we? Lord, what a great joy and delight it is to come and sit at your feet, to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Oh, Father, we love you because you first loved us. Because as we just read from your word, you chose us from even before you created the world. How amazing is that, Lord? Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us illumination and insight into your word this morning. That you give us humble hearts and minds to understand what it means and to receive it. Lord, feed us on your word now. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest struggles I think we can personally wrestle with as believers is questions regarding our salvation. 
We know what the Bible teaches and we know that God's grace is greater than our sin and yet we can still feel unworthy. This is something that I myself have personally wrestled with over the years and I know that that many others have as well. But it's where the passage before us today provides a tremendous amount of assurance and encouragement because it shows how our salvation is completely dependent upon God, that he has chosen us even before we had decided to choose or believe in him. God had chosen us. One of the most striking illustrations of the gospel uh, is found, I think, in Zechariah chapter 3. If you have your Bibles there, you might want to open it up again um, to that passage. It's where we have the great high priest Joshua, who, by the way, is the Hebrew name for Jesus. And he's covered in filthy garments or robes. They are literally covered in excrement. And it means that he has become completely defiled. And it's a symbol not only for his own sin, but as the high priest who represents the people of God for the sin of the whole people. But who is there immediately at his right side, standing there ready to accuse him? but the Satan. That is one of the devil's greatest strategies against us. It's a key insight, I think, into our spiritual warfare or battle, is accusation. You're not good enough to be a Christian. Just look at all the sin which is in your life or you've done. There's no way God would ever accept you. Have you ever had thoughts or feelings like that? I know I have. But the absolutely wonderful thing about the passage is that the Lord himself immediately comes to Joshua's defense. And the Lord says to him, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. God comes to Joshua's defense even before Joshua himself has an opportunity to respond. And what God says is that salvation doesn't depend upon our own performance, but upon the Lord's sovereign initiative and choice. Not only that, but the Lord himself commands that the filthy robes that Joshua is covered in be taken off and rich garments be given to him in their place. It's a beautiful and inspiring image of what Christ Jesus, our great and final high priest, has done for us. He's taken our sin upon himself and then in exchange, he's given us his own rich garments of righteousness, of salvation. The clean, white, undefiled, Sinless robes of his own righteousness, you see? 
If you turn over to Isaiah 61 for a minute with me, I'll show you another example as to what this means. I love this verse. Isaiah 61, and we're just going to look at what it says in verse 10. So if you're taking notes, Isaiah 61, verse 10. In fact, here's another little memory verse for the week, right? It's such a beautiful promise and such an amazing illustration of salvation. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What a profound picture as to what it means to be saved. Because it's not just about being cleansed and forgiven, right? It's not just that the excrement was washed away. It's that he's also, we have been given perfect, sinless righteousness of Christ. Of having our sins washed away, and then, following on from that, being given fresh, New garments to wear. Back in Zechariah 3, and I think this is thrilling. It says this, Listen, O high priest Joshua, and you associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. Isn't that intriguing? It's not just talking about what's happening in Israel's day. These are things symbolic of what is going to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? Now, if you were here last week, this automatically sends tingles down your spine, doesn't it? Because the little stone that was not cut from human hands that would grow into this enormous mountain and defeat all the kingdoms of the earth, here he is again. There are seven eyes on that one stone, which means he has complete, perfect vision. He knows everything. He sees everything. Technically, it's what theologians call omniscience. This says the Lord Almighty and... And here's the thing that just blows your mind. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now, that's exactly what's happened with the coming of Jesus at Calvary. In a single day, he has removed the sin of his people once and for all when our great high priest became our great and final sacrifice, when he offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement and became a curse for us so that we could receive all of the blessings of heaven. He's opened for us in that day the floodgates of heaven so that now, as Paul says, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, there are not too many places in Scripture which explain the nature of this salvation better than, I think, Ephesians 1. And we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, there are just so many theological riches here to uncover. They're like pearls upon a necklace. 
each one beautifully connected to the other, but each one precious and unique. Today we come to look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says again this, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. There are, once again, three truths that I want to focus on this morning to try and unpack this. They are, first of all, God's predestination. Second, God's power. And then third, God's preeminence. When you take a look at each one of these three aspects together, though, I think it gives you a profound and wonderful sense of assurance. The first point, then, is that we have been predestined. I know this is controversial for some people, but I think it's clearly what the Scriptures teach. And if you've been in your growth groups this week and you've had a chance to look at the studies, you would have seen the plethora of other verses that back this up. It, I think, has to be the case because we cannot do anything in and of ourselves. If you turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, I'll show you what I mean. Because there's a misstep that people make here. And it's a little bit, if I can say this, a fudge. The fudge is this, that God in his sovereignty looked into the future and saw who would choose Jesus or not. And that's what it means by predestination. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God didn't foresee, he foreknew. That's completely different. And let me explain why. In our natural condition, before God, it is so completely dire as to make us completely powerless. If it was just a matter of God foreseeing in the future what would happen, no one would do anything. No one would want to. No one would be able to. Let me read to you from Ephesians 2, from verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. This is clearly what we were all like. Notice that we weren't just sick or even terminally ill, but Paul says we were spiritually dead. And not only that, but in our rebellion, we were following the evil one. We were like spiritual zombies. We didn't know God and neither did we want to know God. And this is why Paul says that we were objects of God's wrath. To be saved or brought back to life then has to be something which is done for us from the outside. And it's exactly what verses 4 and on go on to say. 
but God made us alive in Christ. You see, if you're born again, a resurrection has already occurred, which is a foretaste of the physical resurrection which is to come. We have been born again because we've been chosen by God himself, because God has taken a sovereign initiative to make us alive, to give us the ability to be able to choose. As we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, though, this is something that the Lord himself decided to do. And think about this question seriously. When did he decide to do this? Before he created the world. Now, doesn't that blow your mind? Because God had his elect in mind from the very beginning and therefore spiritual regeneration is completely in his hands. The Apostle John explains this particular truth like this. Actually, turn over to this with me and have a look. Uh, John chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 12 and 13. John chapter 1, John's Gospel, from starting at verse 12, he says this. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, Angie and I became grandparents for the first time this week. Yeah, it's obviously something really exciting. There's a simple truth which is captured in being born, which we, I think we take for granted. It's never the child's decision. <laughs> the person being born has absolutely no control or say in it happening, do they? It's a result of outside forces. So too is it the case in being spiritually born again. It's the result of someone else's decision and we cannot control over when or how that happens. Instead, it's something which completely rests with the sovereign hand of God. We can pray and we can witness. Have you ever done that? He can explain the gospel so clearly, so well. And they go, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> there was years and years I'd witnessed to my own father while I was going through Bible college. One day we were having lunch and he said to me at the end of lunch, after about half an hour of my, I think, pretty wonderful theological explanation of the gospel, <laughs> he said, you know, that's the clearest I think you've ever explained it to me. You're getting quite good at this. <laughs> and then he went, yeah, but nah. Nothing you can do can change somebody's mind. The incredible thing is just as we looked at last week, God is working out everything according to his eternal plan. That's amazing. One of my favourite passages in the book of Acts is found in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 17. Have a look at this. Acts 17. Verse 26 and verse 27. And it's worth looking up, friends, because especially if you weren't born in Hobart, or even if you were, but especially if you weren't, 
This verse relates to all of us, but especially to you. Verse 26 of chapter 17, it's where Paul is explaining the gospel to the people in Athens, and he says this. From one man, he made every nation of men. Uh, there's a whole sermon in that. All right, there's not different races of people. We're all of one blood. He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Isn't that incredible? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, though he is not far from each one of us. What an amazing promise. You see, if you're living in Hobart right now, that's no accident. God has a plan and has a, has a purpose for you, even though you might not see it. If you don't believe in Jesus, it's clearer than ever. Why are you here? Why are you here this morning? You might have asked that this morning. I can tell you. It's so that you might reach out to him and find him, even though he's never been far from you. He's never been far from you, but by moving you around and placing you here, his purpose is that you might come to know that he alone is Lord, that no other God can save. He is the one thing who is eternal and constant. You may live in different places of the world. You may have different houses. You may live in different states. You may live in different countries. But there is a God in heaven who loves you and has chosen you. And he wants you to believe. Not your country, not your career, not any of your relationships, not even your abilities. Jesus Christ alone is the one who is the content of the mystery of God's will. He's the little rock you'll either stumble on or believe. Everything is being worked out in accordance with his plan. Perhaps even you're stumbling. It's still his plan. All of which brings us to the second point, and that is, it is by God's power. The saints who were in Ephesus were known, renowned actually, for their interest in sorcery and the occult. So much so that in Acts chapter 19, um, we read about how when the gospel first came to them, they had this massive bonfire where they burnt all of their magic scrolls. This would have been a massive deal. The Bible says that the cost of the scrolls was about 50,000 drachma, which, in keeping for inflation with today's money, they burnt over $5 million worth of books. That's what real repentance looks like. A complete renunciation with the past, especially of anything which is offensive to God. I've seen people from Asian backgrounds throw $10,000 statues of Buddha into the Sydney Harbour. Why? Because they worshipped Christ. Last year, when Renata came to faith out of a spiritist background, one of 
the first things Derek and Ruth and I encouraged her to do was get rid of all of her occult paraphernalia. Things like tarot cards and healing crystals, things like that. Because she'd been born again, she was only too willing to get rid of them. I remember visiting her with Simon once and her house had turned into something of a monastery. It was so bare. She was getting rid of everything which had a connection to her previous past. But that was really the only appropriate response. There was one particular picture, she'll remember this, uh, of a nude, a nude swim of Dane Dark Mofo. And I said, ah, oh, she goes, is there anything else to do? And I was like, yeah, I'm thinking there's probably something else. And she's like, oh, it's not that bad. Come on, you know, you don't, you don't need to go that extreme. I said, well, let's just bring it out here. Oh, no, 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 don't show me. No, you're right, you're right. That's what needs to occur, I think, in all kinds of ways when someone is converted. Maybe it's books or music or art or some kind of religious object which spiritually links you to your non-Christian past. Because idols are linked directly to demons in the Bible. There is a real spiritual connection. And at the heart of all such temptation is the issue of power. Or of who or maybe what it is that you turn to for strength. The truth of the gospel though is that we have been freed from all of that. We've been transferred from one kingdom to another. And this is not only by God's choice but also by his divine strength. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be looking at the prayer Paul prays at the end of chapter 1. It's an amazing prayer and something which is so helpful in clarifying what we need to pray for ourselves. One of those things is that we would know what Paul calls the incomparably great power for us who believe. That's part of his prayer. That is, he prays for the saints in Ephesus that they would know in their experience the power of God's Spirit. That same power which was intimately involved in raising Jesus from the dead. That same power is at work in us. And what Paul prays is that we would know more and more of that power in our lives. Now, friend, are you feeling lifeless or downhearted this morning? Then pray. Pray for God's strength and put your hope in his ability to give you the power you need to endure. The grace to walk in a way which pleases him and the ability to keep on obeying what his word says. Sometimes the reason we can feel weak, though, I think it's because we're relying on our own strength. Or maybe it's that we're pursuing something for selfish ends and we're trusting in something other than the Lord. That could be the case too. If so, then we shouldn't expect the Lord to strengthen us to do something, should we, which is against his will. As we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, though, we can be assured that he will empower us to do everything that he wants. 
turn over to Ephesians 2, and you'll see that Paul says in verse 10 that we are God's workmanship, that we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, but that even these are things which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that an amazing truth to consider? What makes the Christian life such an adventure is discovering God's purpose for your life, of discovering the spiritual gifts that he has given to you, and then discerning how does he want you to use those gifts. Because even that has been determined for you. This is something I think which should all give us great encouragement and hope. The church father Augustine once famously wrote in his book, The Confessions, Give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. Give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. What he means by that is whatever God requires of us, he also gives us the power and the grace to do. So be strong and courageous in serving Christ. Don't shrink back in doubt or fear. The third and final aspect, though, is that this is all for God's preeminence. Paul says at the end of verse 12 that this is all for the praise of his glory. This is the key difference, I think, between biblical Christianity and every other alternative. Every other man-made religion, which is man-made, is for self-glory, even while it pursues the so-called worship of God. It's really all about you. Only biblical Christianity truly brings glory to God. Because to be honest, all the things that I've told you this morning, all of these truths, if it was up to us, you wouldn't make it up. Because it slays you. It humbles your pride. It takes away the control. And I think that's why so many people resist it. For from beginning to end, it's completely dependent upon God. And in so doing, the glory goes to Him. There's nothing you and I can boast in. This is also one of the ways in which I think we can get tripped up. Because our focus always comes back to ourselves. It's like Mick said before. Every week, it's like we need a spiritual wheel alignment. Now, the car of our life just slowly starts to go off. And you come back to church, and oh, that's right. It's about you, God, not about me. It's about what you have done, not what I can do. And can I say, this is especially evident if you ever get upset in your ministry and in your Christian service if you're not being sufficiently recognised or appreciated by others you know you've fallen into this trap again. We get discouraged sometimes and we get upset. But why? Why should others have to affirm or acknowledge what we've done? Particularly if your good works are a gift and mine. Is it perhaps because we don't feel like we're receiving the glory that we're due? 
It might be too confronting for me to phrase it like that, but that's often the case, isn't it? A passage of scripture which I come back to time and time again is Luke chapter 17. It's where Jesus gives the example of someone who has a servant who is responsible for looking after his sheep. And Jesus says when he comes in from the fields, does the boss say, please, please sit down and rest and let me get you something to eat? You've been out all day working and, and, and serving me. No, no, you sit down. No, Jesus says, would he not rather say, hey, come on, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink and after that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Now, we live in such an egalitarian culture today that more than a few people would probably say, yeah, I think the boss should probably say that. The answer is, according to Jesus, no. The boss doesn't have to say that. The boss is paying the wages. You do what you're supposed to do. Jesus says as, that as the worker... That's not his right at all. And so Jesus applies his analogy to all of us in saying this. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say this. We're unworthy servants. We're only doing our duty. Realising that we're not only saved by grace, but that even our good works are a gift of God's grace should completely change our perspective. We don't deserve recognition or praise. Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice when you receive it. And it's great to encourage others. But can I say, if we're getting upset when people don't show us enough appreciation, then something is deeply, deeply wrong in our heart. Because what our response to being recognised whenever you are thanked, try to say this back to people. Say what Jesus says you should say. I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. I try that sometimes. Sometimes, occasionally every now and again, and I'm not looking for this today, but occasionally people say, oh, thank you for that sermon. That was really helpful. And I keep thinking of this verse. And I say these words, you probably heard some of you who have said it to me, oh, I'm an unworthy servant, I've only done my duty. I've never had somebody come back and go, oh, Mark, that's not true. <laughs> I sort of, I'm sort of expecting it, sort of hoping that somebody goes, oh, no, no, Mark, no, you're a great servant. You know, you've gone above and beyond. I haven't met anybody like that yet. They've all just gone, yeah, 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 it could have done better. It's true. It's true. We've only done what our master and Lord asked. And even then, if we're completely honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that we could have done better. And even the fact that you get the privilege to serve in that way, that's a gift. And even when we've served the Lord well and faithfully, Really what we should say is, I'm unworthy to have even done it. I've only done my duty. Because even the good works of ministry that we've been given to us to do, and I praise God that he gives it to us to do, but they're a gift. Now, where does all of this leave us then? 
Well, last week after church, we had a short-term mission meeting with a team who are planning to go to Thailand at the end of September. And one of the passages that we looked at was from Ephesians chapter 6, which talks about the armour of God. It's one of the most well-known passages in the book, and it's incredibly helpful in explaining the spiritual battle that we're all in. It's one of the most well-known passages in the book. Uh, One of the most important truths it relays to us is this. You and I need to stand our ground. Because the victory, if you think about it, has already been won. You don't need to take ground. You don't need to claim ground. But you simply need to stand your ground when the day of evil comes. Why that's so important is because all of the armour that you and I put on, right, is actually the armour of the gospel. So that once again, the glory goes to God. The fact that this is so revolutionary shows how the wheel alignment of our heart keeps going towards our own good works and we're thinking that we're doing something heroic for God when he's actually given us everything we need. What we're doing is when we put on the gospel armour is we're saying to God that he is enough. That what Christ Jesus has achieved on the cross is sufficient for salvation, for service and for spiritual battle. Lift up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. All of those poisonous arrows which make you question or doubt the promises found in God's word. What should you do? Lift up the shield of faith. Rest on the promises of God. Talk back to the devil that you've been chosen, that you've been predestined, that you've been given the righteousness of Christ. Make sure that your feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. Don't let Satan immobilize you from continuing to serve Christ in ministry, but keep moving. Make sure that you stand firm and put on the helmet of salvation, that your mind is protected with the assurance of salvation. Because as we've been seeing, one of the key ways that Satan tries to immobilize us and rob us of joy and confidence is by attacking our assurance. But most of all, friends, can I exhort us with this? Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And may you live in that confidence and that joy and that freedom that you've been forgiven, you've been accepted and you're eternally loved. Let's pray. Ah, Lord and Father, we worship you, the great King and God. We give you all praise and glory and honour. You alone are God. You alone can save. We humble ourselves before you and we marvel, Lord, that even before you created the world, you'd chosen us in love. Even while we were dead in our sins, you made us alive. While we were your enemies, you made us your friends. While we were lost, you were the one that took the initiative to find us. And while we were blind, you gave us sight. 
Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your salvation and your sovereign initiative to us. For the power to be able to believe. Lord, for the great joy that it is to be saved and to be given a purpose to walk in the good works that you've planned and prepared for us to do. Father, we want to pray for each other this morning. Two things that we would know the joy and the freedom and the confidence of this assurance. And secondly, Lord, we want to pray for us who do believe, Lord, that you will give us a renewed zeal and vigour to do and walk in the good works that you've planned for us to do. Give us a clear vision of your purpose for our lives. May we bear much fruit, Lord, And even if it's not as fruitful as some other ministries, some other good works you've given others to do, may we be content. May we be humble, knowing that we're unworthy servants who have only done our duty. Lord, bless each one of us, we pray. Encourage us. Strengthen us for the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand and sing in response to God's word.